Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 16, The First Gentleman of England, Part 1. Last time on the podcast, I covered a couple of the scandals that were spread across the penny papers to the near morbid curiosity of the public at large. This time, we're going to have a look at a man who disappointed his father, loved the ladies, possibly a little too much, and who burned money like it was growing on trees. Sounds like another scandal episode, sure, but hey, he could do what he wanted. He was, after all, the king. Welcome to the reign of King George IV. Now, as you heard, I did say part one. Yes, I am going to be doing this as a two-part podcast. I want this to be an overarching look at his reign, but not get into too many details, because I can certainly cover a lot of other things in a lot of other episodes. But he was in charge for quite a while, and lots did happen. So rather than miss some of the high points, I get to bring my first two-part podcast to you. So let's get started. George Augustus Frederick was born on the 12th of August, 1762. He was the eldest son of his father, King George III, and his wife, Queen Charlotte. Bizarrely, though, the attending courtier, the Earl of Huntingdon, went out to announce that the Queen had given birth to a girl. Presumably he was corrected, but seriously, you wouldn't have thought that was hard to work out, anyway. As the firstborn of the reigning King, the moment he was born, he became the Duke of Cornwall and the Duke of Rothesay. I hope I got that one right. Uh, a few days later, he was made Earl of Chester and also the Prince of Wales. Most of us have to settle for a fluffy toy or the latest kids DVD for a gift, but hey, he was heir to the throne, so the gifts do differ. As a boy, he was reportedly a talented student and quickly learned to speak German, French and Italian. When he turned 18, George Augustus, which is what I'm calling him for now to differ him from George the Dad, was given a place of his own outside the family home. He lived for years at Carlton House, just off Paul Mall near St James Park. Uh, I've covered the life of his father, George III, in an earlier podcast. Highly recommended listening if you haven't already done so. Uh, George III was well known among the population for his fidelity. Who ever heard of a king being faithful to his wife after all? But he was also known for his austerity. King George, regardless of his episodes of mental instability, was austere in his spending and lifestyle. His son? Well, if you ever wanted a serious party animal to inspire you to the lifestyle, then George Augustus was your man. He turned 21 in 1783. Yes, I know it's outside our timeline, but bear with me. So he's turned 21. He's got his own place, 
dad's the king and how does he get to party hard? Well, mainly because George Augustus had some serious bank behind him to fund his lifestyle and the amounts amazed me. When he turned that 21, he received a grant of £60,000 a year from Parliament. That's about £7 million today. Uh, on top of that, his dad gave him another 50000 So it's about £6 million. So he's making over a million pounds a month, for which he had to do nothing. And for George Augustus, it wasn't enough. After all, just his stable alone cost 31,000 a year. That's about 2.5 million pound. I guess he really liked his horses. I'll get to more of his lifestyle in just a moment, but you also need to know that George Augustus had an interesting group of progressive friends. And for the conservative King George III, this did not sit well. Among those friends was parliamentarian Charles James Fox. A political conservative I hadn't heard of him before researching for this podcast, but I can tell you he is definitely going to be getting an episode of his own. He was an anti-slave campaigner, a supporter of the French revolutions, and had crazy ideas like advocating religious tolerance and individual liberties. He was also a vocal opponent to George III, thinking that the king was a despot in the making. So I get why dad might have been a little bit peeved when his son's buddy was a leading voice against him. Get to a couple of others in a moment, but back to George Augustus's lifestyle. Like I said, he was the party animal role model. After his death, he was described by author and biographer Robert Hoosh thusly. Quote, with a personal income exceeding the national revenue of a third-rate power, there appeared to be no limit to his desires, nor any restraint to his profusion. End quote. Uh, he then went on to conclude that George IV contributed more, quote, to the demoralization of society than any prince recorded in the pages of history. End quote. Robert really didn't mince words. So George has got this money behind him. He's got a huge place of his own and knew everyone worth knowing. But given comments like that of his later biographer, you can see why George Augustus became well known for his parties, his drinking and his women. And at that age of 21, he became infatuated with a woman by the name of Maria Fitzherbert. Well, Every guy becomes infatuated with someone at some time, don't they? And it can't be all that bad, can it? Remember when you rebelled against your parents? George Augustus took that to excess as well. I'm sure she was a lovely woman, but in terms of being romantically associated to the future King of England, Maria was a commoner. She was six years older than the Crown Prince, She'd been widowed twice and was, shock, horror, a Roman Catholic. And, of course, he was determined to marry her, regardless of what his dad thought. For people these days, that can mean some family strife and quite possibly not talking to each other at family dinners. Uh, hello, Harry and Megan, if you're listening. It was a little bit different for George Augustus, though. 
because there were literally laws in place for him. The 1701 Act of Settlement was in place to legally prevent the spouse of a Catholic from ascending the throne. So, if George married her, yep, no throne for you, mate. You can add to that the legal block the 1772 Royal Marriages Act gave. That little act means George Augustus cannot get married unless his dad says yes. And you just know that George III isn't going to be saying yes to poor Maria. But hey, George Augustus got around that last part. He just didn't ask his dad to begin with. On the 15th of December 1785, at Maria's house in Mayfair, the couple went through a marriage ceremony. Now, this was of course completely invalid in terms of the couple being legally married. Oh, think of someone else along those lines that comes to mind. Uh, Maria believed that she was his wife and she also agreed to keep the union secret. Continuing his party ways was costing money, of course, and George Augustus spent so much of his bank that he actually had to leave Carlton House and he moved into Maria's place. But as I said, he was a well-connected man, and so his friends in Parliament in 1787 proposed a grant to help relieve his debts. As it turned out, however, if Parliament paid the money, it was believed that word would get out to the general public that George had, quote, married Maria, end quote. So the grant was nixed and George had to go without Parliament's help. But rumours had gotten out though, and it was Charles James Fox, the Whig leader, who went on public record and was reported as saying that the marriage wasn't true. This was actually something that he did at the personal request of King George III, who was kind of a hard guy to say no to. Maria wasn't happy about any of this, which should come as no surprise. She had agreed to be discreet, certainly, but remember she also thought herself legitimately married to the future monarch. But his debts were bad. Really bad. So, in the end, Parliament took the risk and decided to give him a grant. To the tune of the modern equivalent of about $20 million. Can you imagine the media frenzy over that today? And not only did he get the $20 million, they also gave him another $7.5 million in modern dollars to restore and improve his old residence of Carlton House. So he was basically kind of like a millennial that had a GoFundMe page that went viral. Some people have all the luck. During this time, King George III was experiencing one of his bouts of illness, and it meant that George the Son was about to become regent in his place. Without bogging down into the legalities of it all, which don't mean much at this point, it was looking like there might be a problem in putting George Augustus in charge because the king was still alive. They already had a king and the legalities in place didn't care about whether he had to be capable of ruling or not. But before it became a critical point, George III recovered from the illness, so it became moot. And aside from this bit of drama, can you guess what else George Augustus was doing? Yep, still spending. 
and he was spending so much that the king finally stepped in. I'm sure that there's no doubt that the king knew about Maria and the apparent marriage, but the king knew this wasn't legal anyway, and the ultimatum he gave to his son was this. George Augustus was to marry his first cousin, Carolyn of Brunswick. They had never met, and at first George refused his father's wish. But as his debts mounted even more, he finally acquiesced, and on the 8th of April 1795, Caroline became his legal wife. One could say that he then fulfilled his royal duties because their only child, the Princess Charlotte, was born in 1796. Now, the newly married couple really didn't get along from the get-go, and pretty much as soon as Charlotte was born, they basically lived separate lives for the rest of their marriage. Maria continued being his mistress-slash-first wife for as long as they knew each other, but that didn't stop George from having numerous affairs both before and after his ascension to the throne. I want to cover some of these women in a later podcast because there's some amazing stories to be told there, but in this episode, I'm just going to hit some of the highlights. Firstly, there was Mary Robinson, hugely talented and famous for her acting and, more importantly, her writing and poetry. She was known as the English Sappho for the amazing quality of her work. Sappho had been a legendary poet from ancient Greece, so you can see this as being a huge compliment. When she threatened to sell letters that George had sent her to the press, she was paid off to keep her silence. And then there was Frances Villiers, Countess of Jersey. Frances and George had an affair in 1794. At the time, she was 40 years old, a grandmother and also a mother of 10. She was described as a scintillating society woman, a heady mix of charm, beauty and sarcasm. I like her already. She is also a classic example of the complicated relationships that people in these social circles had. I think it was in my podcast on Mary Shelley that I spoke of how some of the relationships refused to be defined, and I think to some extent that shows in the way men and women in this society acted towards each other. As I said, Frances started her affair with George in 1794. The following year, George made her husband master of the horse. This is actually a very prestigious position. The master of the horse was a prominent member of the Lord's Council, had direct influence and also a great deal of social status. He was the fourth Earl of Jersey, so already in the royal social circles anyway, and had married Francis back in 1770 when he was 34 and she was 17. Francis was known to have had a number of affairs within the aristocracy. In fact, from my reading, it seems like this was her main hobby. Francis had encouraged George into his marriage to Caroline and was later went on to become a friend to Caroline and a prominent member of her household as a lady of the bedchamber. That's another one of those weird titles that sounds like one thing actually means something else. 
Francis would have been one of Carolyn's closest advisors, a confidant of her troubles and thoughts and there protecting her from the court as a whole. Francis and George had their affair flow through the years and that was until 1803 when George became infatuated with Isabella Ann Seymour Conway, Marchioness of Hartford. Isabella had married her husband Francis the second Marquis of Hartford, in 1776, when she was 16. Sorry, I don't make the names up. So we've got Francis, the now former flame, and Francis the guy, nobleman with a wife catching the king's eye. Nobleman Francis had seen the way that George was looking at his wife, and he promptly took her off to Ireland and out of sight. Didn't really work out, though, and the king kept trying. The affair between Isabella and the future King of England began in 1807. I do have to speculate here and assume that in some way her husband knew and lived with it for the social standing of being closer to the future King. George had become a regular guest at their residence in London and also at their country residence in Ragley Hall in Warwickshire. Uh, Isabella is also a really important woman in the overall life of George Augustus. Uh, putting it in very crude terms that we can easily understand today, at the time of the 1800s, Whigs were like liberal thinkers, more like what we might describe as left-wing today. The Tories were more conservative, so more like right-wing today. I admit this is by no means an adequate explanation. I'm from Australia, we don't have those <laughs> names here, but I'll cover the parties another time. But what I need to get across to you at this point is that up until this time, George's social circle and peers were more Whigs than Tories. Men like parliamentarian that I mentioned before, Charles James Fox. But with the affair with Isabella, George's ideologies moved from this liberal thinking to a more conservative, or Tory, way of looking at the world. This affair was kind of publicly known and of some concern, particularly among the Catholics. Taking a more conservative view of the world, George sidled into the English camp that thought Catholics should not have rights such as being able to be in Parliament, and thus lose that chance at representation in lawmaking in the realm. Isabella did have her supporters though. George's move to a more conservative viewpoint led senior politician George Canning to later describe Isabella as Britain's guardian angel. Throughout this time, George was still spending time with his first wife, Maria, even while continuing his affair with Isabella. This state of affairs, no pun intended, continued until 18. 19. And along comes Elizabeth Cunningham, also known as Marchioness Cunningham. Her father had made a fortune in banking and she had married Viscount Cunningham in 1794. Despite her beauty, she was considered vulgar, shrewd, greedy and unsuited to aristocratic society on account of her common background. Well, harsh, but she must have been quite that beauty, because among her lovers was the future Nicholas I, Tsar of Russia. 
like I said, it seems like infidelity is the hobby of choice. I guess they didn't have TV, so what else are you going to do? And again, it's that aspect of everyone knows, but everyone seems okay with it. So she starts sleeping with the future king of England, then continues when he becomes king, and she also remains his mistress for the rest of his life. Over the course of their affair, George Augustus becomes George IV, king of the United Kingdom, and it was once that he had ascended to the throne that Elizabeth's husband was also made a Marquess. Now that's a two-step jump up the peerage ladder. He was also made a Lord Steward of the Household. Like Master of the Horses, this was a huge promotion and a place of power within the King's Court. Elizabeth's son was made Master of Robes for the King. Again, another well-placed position. Now, I kind of like Elizabeth on the little I've read on her so far. When George died in 1830, she actually refused to take the plates and jewels that had been willed to her by the king. So she wasn't really in it for the money. And if that surprises you, well, her husband, when at the funeral for George, broke his staff of office and effectively resigned immediately and never took public office again. It seems like they all knew what they wanted and who they wanted to be with and were satisfied with their decisions. But of course, these weren't the only King's women. Actually, that's kind of a misnomer. I get the feeling that these were fiercely intelligent, independent women that made their own choices. Wasn't like they needed his money, so they had their own reasons and did what they wanted. Anyway, I'll talk more about them in the future. But with all these affairs, some well known publicly, there was always going to be rumours of illegitimate children. After all, what's a royal podcast without them? It's reported that George IV once told a friend that he had a son that was a naval officer in the West Indies. Some think this was Captain Henry A.F. Harvey. Captain Harvey was born in 1786 and was George Augustus's son by songwriter Lady Anne Lindsay. Uh, that said, Anthony Camp, Director of Research at the Society of Genealogists, has dismissed the claim that George IV was the father as fictitious. Jumping back now before most of the king's women, it was in 1804 that a dispute arose over the custody of Princess Charlotte, which led to her being placed in the care of King George III. I think we can all agree that given his partying lifestyle, George wasn't the greatest of fathers. The whole situation for poor Princess Charlotte was exacerbated by the antagonism her parents showed towards each other. And while we might go and blame her dad, her mum was pretty much the same. George Augustus accused his wife of having an illegitimate son, which is always awkward. 
a parliamentary commission of inquiry was held to investigate the Crown Prince's claims. Princess Caroline was cleared, but the investigation showed that Caroline had been, and I quote, extraordinarily indiscreet. End quote. So while I've just gone through a few of the women that George had stepped out with, it appears that his wife was pretty much doing the same. I know there are plenty of people out there who enjoyed Game of Thrones, but in some ways it has nothing on the real thing when you think about it. Well, except the dragons part. But jumping back to when George Augustus was still Crown Prince, having affairs and partying like a Russian, as Robbie Williams once put it so eloquently, George continued his lifestyle until 1810. And it was at this time that George's younger sister and the daughter who could be described as the apple of her father's eye, the Princess Amelia, died. She had contracted measles in 1808 and never really recovered. In ill health for the next two years, she later suffered a skin infection called erysipelas. I hope I got that right. Also known as St. Anthony's Fire for the red rashes it presented on the skin. Her body exhausted from years of ill health, Amelia died on the 2nd of November, 1810. In utter despair, King George III fell into his illness, his madness, once more. Which means things are going to be in the hand of George Augustus. So here endeth the episode, part one. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp.com at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes happy to look into whatever might interest you as well you are the ones listening on twitter at vic gaslamp and my instagram account is victorian gaslamp post there probably a couple of times a week and i do it as a bit of an extra aside to the podcast itself speaking of which the next episode will be out in two weeks so keep a lookout for that and i'll see you next time under the gas lamp (laughs) 